You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. I am a distinct individual. I know where I stop and where the world starts. I recall my paths and ways through life. What I did, how I thought. I remember myself in innumerable situations. I never doubt that I am me. All this seems ordinary. But how can all this come to be? I see, I hear, I feel. How can separate perceptions bind together into a coherent whole? How can all be me? What makes me a self? My identity through time, my identity across senses, what maintains personal identity? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. What's personal identity? It's easy to describe, maddening to decipher. So where to begin? It's part philosophy, what personal identity means, and part biology, how personal identity works. Part philosophy of mind and part biology of the brain. I begin with philosophy. That's why I'm in Berkeley meeting a favorite philosopher of mind, John Searle. John, uh, how, how do we deal with this question of personal identity? How can we begin to think about this concept of self? The problem with personal identity is we feel there is a fact that I'm me. Yeah. There's some fact about me that makes me me. But that's hard to pin down philosophically because all of my experiences change. All the parts of my body, all the molecules in my body have changed. The most uh, a famous uh, negative attack on the notion of self was by David Hume. Mm -hmm. And he said, philosophers always talk as if uh, they had this experience of the self, but he says, whenever I try and grab my forehead and think, where is the self? All I get is a kind of headache. I feel my hand pushing against my head. I feel a vague hangover from last night. But there isn't any self in addition to all of that. And Hume was, gave a, a famous destructive uh, examination of the notion of the self, that there isn't any self in addition to all all of our particular experiences. I used to think Hume was right, and there is something right about that, but there is another argument that I use, uh, and I want to say this does produce a formal notion of the self, and that is if you ask yourself, how is it possible that you can explain your behavior without giving causally sufficient conditions? I can tell you who I voted for in the last election, my reasons for voting, but they don't determine my vote. I could have had those reasons and still have voted for the other guy. It was up to me. But how is that intelligible? That is, what's the meaning of the claim that I can explain my behavior without giving you causally sufficient conditions? And there I think you can only make sense of that if you suppose that there is a self that makes a reason effective by deciding to act on it. 
Now, that's not a substantive self because there's no experience of the self. But I'm saying in order to make sense of rational conscious behavior, you have to postulate a point from which that behavior comes. Let's look at how people actually decide questions of personal identity. How do you prove that you're the same guy who bought this house 20 years ago? Uh, and there it seems to me there are several different criteria we employ, in fact. The one that's most basic for us is bodily continuity. If it's the same body, it's the same guy. However, that's not itself by itself sufficient because we can imagine cases of brain transplants yeah. where if your brain gets put in another guy's body and his brain gets put in your body, well, we're not so confident that body identity does it. Now, a criterion that's very important for us is memory. It is this continuity of memory that gives me the sense that I am a single person that continues. And then, so to speak, orderly changes in bodily development. If I suddenly change like Gregor Zamsa into a big insect, or if I suddenly I, I changed into a mountain, well, then we're not so confident. It's still the same guy. And then a fourth criterion we use is a continuity of personality. This is not satisfactory, but I think it's where we are. That is, I think we get rough and ready criteria you have to postulate a self to make sense of rational behavior. And then our urge is always to think, well, we want something we can't have. We want, we want to find the soul that is the bottom at the bottom of all this beer muggy stuff I've been talking about. And of course, there isn't anything. Now, I'll tell you how I think we're going to get out of this. And that is, is we know more about how the brain works. So I think that the next step in this is it will be made when we get a better understanding of the neurobiology of the self. I'm glad John's not satisfied, because I'm surely not. Here, according to John, is the state of play. Maintaining personal identity combines the philosophy of identity with the psychology of the self, which are all determined by the biology of the brain. A mouthful. But the core is neurobiology, brain science. I've followed the field for half a century, and I remain struck by wonder. To maintain personal identity, how can the brain deliver what's required? John campaigns for more neurobiology, and I'm with him on this. That's why I go to Caltech, to visit a pioneer of the neurobiology of consciousness, Christoph Koch. Christoph's mission is to discover the neural correlates of consciousness. Christoph, we have this perception of ourselves as some kind of a unity. I, I'm a me. And yet, when I think about it, we have all these diverse inputs of sight and sound and sensation, and all of the molecules of my body have been replaced uh, over the last years. So how, how am I me? It's not something that just happens passively. It's an active computation that the brain has to perform to keep on running this module, this self-module that keeps up this, this feeling, this person that I'm still me. And it, it involves a number of, of processes. One of them is called the binding. When I see you, you know, I can see your face and your color, etc. I can hear your voice, but it's all tied together. And so the question is, how, how does the brain do it? Francis Crick and I have proposed that uh, one way this could be done is using a particular type of signal called a 40 hertz oscillatory signal, that there's a specific mechanism in the brain that this could achieve this, uh, this binding. So think about the, the analogy is a Christmas tree with electric candles. So think about a Christmas tree that has 20 billion 
electric candle, so a very, very big tree. And, and each, each candle these, being like a neuron exactly. in our brain. And each candle flickers briefly. And that's a neuron, if you actually, um, you know, electrically listen to a neuron, as it were, you can hear a little discharge. I mean, you can put it on an audio monitor, and that's the way neurons communicate. Now, binding means that these thousand candles over here and these, you know, 100,000 here and those 20,000 there, they all belong to the same percept. How do you do that? Well, one way to do it, for example, they can all uh, fire simultaneously. Another way, they can all sort of fire with some, with some periodicity. Let's say they all fire every 40 milliseconds on average with a lot of jitter, every 25th of a second. And so then you would have another neuron that looks at all those neurons and sort of combines them because they all fire together sort of uh, encodes the fact that over here is the, the voice of the person, over there is the color of the per uh, person, over there is the face of the person, or the, the, you know, the color of a suit, and all of those actually corresponds to one percept. And that could be mediated by these different forms of neuronal firing. So a an hypothesis is that oscillations, these gross, gross frequencies in the brain, may have some uh, mechanistic way of, of binding different modalities Correct, together. that would be the hypothesis in this case, correct. correct. There are various other hypotheses. Some scientists, neuroscientists say, well, there is really no binding problem because, you know, if you have this Christmas tree analogy, well, by and large, if you go to higher cortical areas, the only activity, so the only electrical candles flickering are the ones that correspond to the thing I'm currently attending to. So if I'm attending to you, there's only a population over here that codes for your face, over here for your voice, here for the motion, and all the other electrical candles are shut off. So in that sense, the binding problem is very easy to solve and yet that, that you don't need oscillation. Some people say that. We are not what we seem. Our inner unity feels so natural, but it is not simple and cannot happen passively. All of our separate senses must bind together actively and seamlessly. What we imagine to be an organic whole, the first person entity I call I myself, is the synthesized product of different brain systems flowing and working together, manufacturing unity from diversity. That's what we are. Our mental integrity is assembled, and our brains are the binder. Am I still a person? I start to worry. Then realize my problem's even worse. Binding only gets me unity of the moment, I, myself, am frozen in an instant. How then to generate selves, myself, across time and maintain my personal identity through decades of life? To find the magic, I go to New York to meet a neuroscientist who believes that selves, as independent entities, do not exist. The key to the riddle, he says, are oscillations deep in the brain. Rudolfo Linus is chairman of neuroscience at New York University. The image of self we make by putting together the ability we have to bind things. So I see a flower, I taste an apple, whatever. All of these things when come together uh, form an irreducible um, common denominator, which is the I. So what is this I? And clearly, I is a simplification of everything that is happening. It is something that is uh, 
a, a way to represent what is happening. So we have this entity that we call self, which doesn't exist. It is simply a wonderful way to address a functional state that has a, has a continuity. Now, the lovely thing about it is that we do remember being children, that somehow the system modifies itself with the passage of time such that not only do we observe, not only do we analyze, but we remember what we have done before. Yeah. So we have a history of our, of our own existence, which is us. How is it that we can continue to have an image of self? Well, obviously, the advantage of having that is huge. Why? Because it means that we can, by learning, we, we generate experience that helps us survive. So it's absolutely of the essence in order to have a nervous system that allows us to survive, that we should remember the experience we had before. And that's what, that's the core of self. That's the core of self, absolutely. You, you are what you remember yourself to be. But if, if uh, uh, you have amnesia or some problems with your memory, you, you, you're still the same person with the problem. No, you're not the same person. Uh, you're the same body, but you, you, you may lose, for instance, you can actually lose half of yourself. This is one of the most incredible neurological conditions known as hemineglect. Hemineglect. If it happens if you have a lesion of one side of the thalamus in the center of the thalamus, or it happens if you have lesion of the cortex. Suddenly, you will find yourself seeing only half the world, more to the right. This is your hand. I don't know what that is. Somebody else's hand. You have lost identity. You don't, you don't know that you have two eyes. You don't know that clocks then go from 12 back to 12. It goes from 12 to 6 and that's it. You don't know that half of the universe exists. It tells you how you are made. You're made out of two parts. If you lose one part of your brain, cognition in that side is gone. And you don't even know that you don't know. You, you ignore the fact that there's half of the world missing. It's you not that it's black. No, no, it doesn't. You don't know that it exists. What do you mean? So very surprising, very lovely, because it tells you that, in fact, although this eye is working, although the thalamus is working, although the cortex is working, the system is not generating self. Why is it not generating self? Because the thalamus comes into flavors, the thalamus that informs, and the thalamus that put context to the information. The midline thalamus, the interlaminar nucleus, are the ones that produces the binding. If there is no binding, the activation happens, but you don't put it together into a cognitive experience. So we really begin to understand how cognitive experience comes to be. That is what the self is, a thalamocortical integration. That is certainly what part of the self is, but all of the self, I've struggled with this. My brain science education wars with my philosophical musings. To Rodolfo, as to the vast majority of brain scientists, the self is biologically determined and personal identity is maintained by brain circuits. But I do not dance to the beat of the majority, nor do I go contrarian for splash or spite. It may sound silly, but I strive for truth. So does biology exhaust the self 
with nothing left over unexplained. Some say that there is more to selves and persons than what can ever be gleaned from our electrical probes and chemical assays. I hear that philosopher Stephen Browdy makes this case, seeking new realms of reality and asserting the primacy of psychology. The concept of personal identity isn't a very clear concept. It has some things to do with psychological criteria. It has some things to do with physiological criteria. When we talk about cases of multiple personality or dissociative identity disorder, for example, there are all sorts of respects in which we might want to switch from one criterion to another. In terms of continuity of personality, we might want to say that certain alternate personalities have uh, psychological continuity and psychological consistency, and so that counts as a kind of continuation of identity. On the other hand, someone with different multiple personalities doesn't have to apply for multiple driver's licenses or register to vote more than once. So it really depends on the context whether we want to consider somebody with multiple personality one person or many persons. And I don't think there's a privileged solution to that question. Is there more to our consciousness than just the brain? What, what can we learn from the identity, uh, the seeming identity of our personality? The answer to that, I think, depends in part on how much exotic data you're willing to entertain. I mean, if you're willing to look seriously at some of the data suggesting the persistence of personality after bodily death, that throws the question into a whole different arena than the one the neuroscientists would want to deal with. After the body's decomposed, then if there's evidence of continuation of personality, the cer certainly the neurophysiological view goes out the window. Injuries, uh, stroke, tumor in different parts of the brain will have extremely specific impact. We, we can lose the ability to understand a, a written word, but understand it verbally. We can, we can understand, but not speak. And that would seem to indicate that every one of our modalities is, uh, is just a function of the brain. I think that's inferring too much. It would show at most, perhaps, that it's mediated by the brain. But it doesn't show that the brain is essential for the self to continue. If it turns out, as I believe and others believe, that our psychological descriptive categories can't be translated without residue into, say, purely physical or physiological categories, then there is something that we need to understand about the psychological realm that can't be accounted for any other way. And this is not what we call an epiphenomena, an artifact, something that's emergent, that uh, is, uh, is, is not just the product in some way, however complicated, of the physical world. Well, I wish I had a view about which came first, the physical or the mental, but, and I don't have an answer to that, but since it seems to me transparently the case that there is a psychological realm, and since that realm can't be translated or understood uh, completely in terms of another kind, then it seems we have no choice but to take that part of reality and understand its place in the bigger picture. I'd love a bigger picture of reality, but evidence, please, is weak at best. How else could so many smart people be physicalists? But I'm more than open-minded 
My great hope is that there is indeed a bigger picture in which my personal identity resides, and I'm ready to rip off my skeptic-making blindfolds and see the new world. But whenever I feel hope surging and science skidding, I know I need a skeptic. For personal identity, philosopher Michael Tooley is my man. We have all this different kind of sensory input from seeing, hearing, and yet I feel like I'm a unified person, that I have one sense of myself. Is this an illusion? No, I don't think it's an illusion. The closest that somebody want to draw is that you need a spiritual substance or soul that, so to speak, underpins the identity. But uh, I think you've been saying that that's not correct in the following sort of way. It would be possible if you had great power to take a soul and transform it radically, okay? One could take uh, the soul of one individual and wipe it completely clean of all memories and personality traits and put in completely new memories and personality traits, right? Now, I wouldn't think that would be the same person. I mean, if it turned out I had a soul, I know that sort of transformation and so on, they'd be into a theist, etc. right? I would think that Michael Tooley had not survived, right? So I don't think that sameness of substance, be it spiritual substance or material substance, it's what's crucial for personal identity. So the question is, what is crucial, right? I think it's a matter of the right sort of causal connections, okay? I think what makes it the case that, you know, I'm the same person as a certain other person who lived many years ago and so on, Michael Tilly, is that there is a chain of connectedness uh, going from my mental states today, my personality, my memories go back to various experiences I had earlier, right? And so I think it's the right sort of connection. It doesn't have to be a direct connection from me now to me in the past. So I think it's, it's continuity of things like memory, personality, traits, uh, basic beliefs, fundamental attitudes and desires and so on that make one the same person. But you don't need some artificial disembodied soul that undergirds all of this to give it this unity. There is a tricky question about what the right sort of causal connection is. Uh, a friend of mine used to look forward to the future when, you know, new and better bodies would be created, right? And all of his memories and personality traits would be downloaded. Speak, would be downloaded into his other body, right? And so there's a question whether he would survive that sort of operation or what you'd have is a replica. There's a question about whether you need a tighter sort of connection, whether you need the same brain, even with different molecules continuing to exist, together with the causal connections, whether both are necessary, or whether it's only the causal connections and continuity that matter. So if you have the personal identity and you, sh and you take all of the information from one brain and put it into another brain, mm -hmm. what you're saying is it's not clear whether the person exists or not. That's right. I mean, there are, there are two problems. I mean, one is that you could transfer it into two other brains, okay? And then the question is, you know, which one is you, right? The other is you could, so to speak, transfer, but forget to destroy the one brain, right? And so uh, in both cases, you're inclined to say they're replicas, right? And so there's a real question whether then the person that exists at that point is identical with the person who previously existed. And I say what is clear is you need continuity and causal connections, but you may need a bit more. You may need something like continued existence of the brain uh, in order to have uh, identity rather than uh, simply a replica. And why would that be the case, though? If, if the person is only the brain, mm -hmm. which is a physical substrate, and there is information encoded in that substrate, however complex, if you could capture every to the last bit, you would still say that there's a possibility that would not 
be you, but would still be a, a replica. Well, here's the worry. I mean, the, the feeling is that whether or not it's you shouldn't depend upon what's happening out there elsewhere in the world, okay, right? And so if we transfer the information in your brain into a, another brain, okay, right? On the one hand, if that's the only transfer of information we do, right, you may be tempted to say, oh, that's still me, right? But if the information could have been transferred to another brain, if it had been, then it looks like you can't say that both of those are you, although that needs to be considered more carefully. Maintaining personal identity probes the inner sanctums of mind and selves. It combines two ideas, the philosophy of continuity, how things persist through time, and the psychology of self, how mental unity emerges by binding together diverse sensations. The problem can be ducked if the self is illusion, there'd be no personal identity to maintain. But if the self is real, what constitutes personal identity? Body, brain, memories, personality, causal connections? Brain mechanisms are involved, but are they too crude to maintain personal identity? Could non-physical psychology or a religious soul do a better job? Not obviously. A soul would start out blank, like a newborn brain, and impressions on a soul, like circuits in a brain, could be erased. I think about this. Each self, having once existed, becomes an ineradicable fact that not even God, if there is a God, could ever alter. Selves are real, and we persist through time. Figuring out how this happens brings us closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.